American Road Trip Talk begins after this message. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I want to bring attention to a life-saving product called Alert Drops. Drowsy driving is one of the most catastrophic problems in America, and Alert Drops will stop it. What is Alert Drops? Alert Drops is a simple spray on the tongue made out of citric acid, sour lemon, and water. A simple spray on the tongue, nothing in your system, and you're naturally awake, naturally alert. Go to alertdrops.com. Very important. Go to alertdrops.com and stay safe. The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Road Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and back roads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to have you along for the ride. Glad to be working alongside Nathan Miller, our producer. This is American Road Trip Talk. We'll be back with the interview right after this. There's room to roam around the scenic byways in Southeast Idaho's high country. And it's a great time to get away and decompress. Did you know Southeast Idaho is hot springs country? Come and relax in natural mineral water hot pools. Then visit one of their quirky museums like the Idaho Potato Museum, the Museum of Clean, or the Butch Cassidy Museum. Go to IdahoHighCountry.org to plan your trip. You're sure to find your favorite way to disconnect when you visit Idaho. Adventure, history, and beauty all await you on the Natchez Parkway, a national scenic byway and national park. This 444-mile drive takes you through some of the country's most stunning landscapes while also allowing you access to exciting communities along the way. From Natchez, Mississippi to Nashville, Tennessee, we invite you to explore the trace and discover America. Plan your trip at scenictrace.com. That's scenictrace.com. No other station delivers this much variety. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to American Road Trip Talk. Glad to have you with us today as we celebrate the comic partnership of Bud Abbott and Lou Costello and a special exhibit honoring the legendary duo at the Hollywood Museum, located, oddly enough, in Hollywood. Nathan Miller is our producer. Always glad to be working with him. Today, our honored guest once again is Jeffrey Mark, the walking encyclopedia of classic Hollywood. Delighted to have you with us, Jeffrey, as always. Delighted to be with you, sir. The weather in Seattle is nothing like the weather I'm having out here in the California desert. Hopefully it's a dry heat. (laughs) As we speak, we're having a chill wave. It's only 103. We have to get off the sweaters in a moment. Yes, I'm quite sure. (laughs) Make sure to take a picture of that. (laughs) Jeffrey, I'm so happy to hear that Abbott and Costello are being properly fated. They are, it seems like it's their rightful due to celebrate all that they accomplished. In fact, I'll go even one step further, Jeffrey, and suggest that a lot of people outside the industry, especially, just don't understand what a big deal they were. And they were such big box office. Well, big deal and a a big deal across Almost every area of show business there was while they were alive. You know, they started in burlesque, which is not what people think it was. Burlesque was adult variety show. It was vaudeville with a big naughty wink to it. It wasn't just 
ladies taking off their clothes. Mostly it was comedians doing sketches. And this is where Abbott and Costello met. This is how they formed their act together using these time-tested sketches that other people had written, other people had done. But somehow when they did it, all of a sudden you forgot what everybody else did. Who's on first, their classic sketch? People make it sound like that's the only thing they ever did. Well, of course not. But also they didn't write it and it wasn't written for them. Other people did it. But when Bud Abbott and Lou Costello got together, their perfect melding of comedy timing made it a classic. And they went from vaudeville, from from burlesque, I should say, from burlesque to vaudeville, to Broadway, to movies, to radio, to television. And they did it seamlessly with a lot of awfully hard work and uh, difficulty because people don't realize that Bud was an epileptic. And the face slaps started because sometimes Lou had to slap him when he saw him going into a fit to get him back to the act. So uh, a lot of challenges here for 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 two men, and, and yet they made it work. They made it work with their own challenges. They're, they had to overcome those. As a matter of fact, Luke Costello, I read, had bouts of rheumatic fever. That's no walk in the park either. No, no. In fact, they uh, they were off the, not off the air, but they had people filling in for, for Lou very early on in their radio show uh, because Lou got sick. And uh, you, you talk about overcoming tragedies. We're talking about two wonderful, funny men. And we're talking about tragedy. When Lou was finally well enough to go back on the air, uh, Lou, Lou had children and a little boy and uh, the afternoon of his first show coming back, his little boy drowned in their pool mm. and uh, Lou went on, Lou went on for uh, the, the little boy. He promised him he'd perform and he did it. There was always this tinge of tragedy around the act I, I don't know. I can't speak that it made them funnier. I don't know how they could have been funnier, but, but because what Bud and Lou did, the characters they evolved were almost cartoons. Of course, the men, the real men had to be very, very different. Yes. Very, very different. And that leads me to ask you, Jeffrey, what was the chemistry between them as two individual performers, entertainers, how did they meet and how did they click? I mean, was this okay? We've been introduced or one introduced himself to the other. What brought them together so magnetically? It was happenstance. They were both working in burlesque. Uh, it's it's so hard. We, we would need three or four of your shows to, to, to really well describe what burlesque was because it's unlike any other form of show business we've ever had. It, it was a melding of the structure of um, a minstrel show, meaning every burlesque show had the same sketches, the same jokes, the same structure. It was what was expected by the audiences. They came to see what they'd already seen, if that makes any kind of sense to you. 
you, you, you shuffle that with vaudeville, which is a constantly changing variety show of singers and comedians and actors and jugglers and, and dancers and animal acts and, and all kinds of weird stuff. You sort of shuffle that together. And that's what got your burlesque and beautiful women who took off their clothes, but not all of their clothes. You couldn't say hell. You couldn't say damn. You couldn't be vulgar in any way. You could be suggestive. And Lou what was, was called a low comedian. Bud was what was called a straight man. The straight man almost always got top billing because it was the straight man who really timed the act, meaning he made sure the punchline got out at the proper moment. He made sure that the setups were right. So the jokes really hit. He's the one who more often than not spoke to the audience and then spoke to the comedian. So you, you had a comedian who needed a really good straight man because Luke Costello could get wild. He needed someone to reel him in. In Bud Abbott, you had perhaps, perhaps the best straight man in show business history. Uh, comedy teams, they needed, they needed so badly. Uh, Martin and Lewis, uh, Noonan and Marshall, Peter, Peter Marshall, our, my dear friend Peter, uh, known for the Hollywood Square, started out as a straight man in a comedy act. It's why he was so good on the Hollywood Squares with all the comedians. It's a very special set of skills. And each one figured out they needed the other's talents. And as soon as they began performing together, it showed because they rose up the ranks very quickly once they began working together. Kind of like George Burns and Gracie Allen, who individually, they worked. And when they got together, immediately they rose up the ranks of vaudeville so they 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 were two people who knew that they needed someone like the other and were smart enough to see it realize it and make it happen and you put me in mind of the marx brothers jeffrey for crying out loud if you couldn't be suggestive what's the groucho for you know there's there's an old ethel merman story when she was doing a movie called Alexander's Ragtime Band and she was singing the Irving Berlin song Heat Wave. She started the heat wave by letting her seat wave was the lyric. <laughs> but in late 1930s Hollywood, you couldn't do that. She started the heat wave by letting her feet wave and Merman screamed, where is the wit in that? What's the why bother singing the song if you can't have the little bit of suggestion of wit? Um, it's, it's a very strange thing. Abbott and Costello on paper should never have grown beyond burlesque and vaudeville that they were able to do radio and television so successfully because their act was suggestive. Uh, the comedy they came from because of burlesque, you couldn't talk about sex, but you had code words like um, a joke would have it set up. And what did you get out of it? Same darn thing. And the audience would laugh hysterically. Why? Same darn thing meant a woman's reproductive parts. 
but you couldn't say anything about a woman's reproductive parts. But if you said same darn thing, everybody knew what you were talking about, but nobody could blow a whistle because how can you arrest someone for saying same darn thing? Uh, you know, I'll meet you around the corner in a half an hour. If you did something good for a pretty girl, what was she going to give you in a half an hour? Same darn thing. Almost, <laughs> almost disappointedly said. So it's, it's very, um, it's unusual that that kind of beginning that Bud and Lou were able to clean up their act entirely, take out all the suggestions and be such a hit on radio and television. People don't remember. Uh, we spoke uh, for, for those of us, hopefully many millions of you listening to us right now, there is a strike going on and I can't mention individual names, but Bud and Lou had two television series they were regulars on one that had their own name. I can say that that was a filmed half hour sitcom, but they also did at the same time uh, a live variety show. They were one of four hosts on a live variety show that was sponsored by a toothpaste company. So you had them doing this live hour in front of an audience of classic sketches and funny stuff. And you could really see Lou playing with the audience and getting off script and doing wild improvisations. And then you have this very tightly controlled half hour sitcom done with one camera, like a movie with no audience and canned laughter. And you see, again, two very different sides of the same team, both successful, very successful. In the case of Bud Abbott, and you said it so well, Jeffrey, a few moments ago, perhaps the best, which is also a way of being a setup man, a straight man doing the comedy. I understand, and just recently I read this, that in doing Who's On First, there actually people think, oh, yeah, there is that routine. But if you look at it in terms of the timing, it seems that there were multiple routines because they could edit on the spot reading the audience. And it was a matter, is it going to go three minutes? Is it going to go eight minutes? And it would be in between. There was a way they played off the audience's energy and the opportunity that presented itself on stage. The, the, you, you said something very wise. The original Who's On First routine went on and on and on. The routine goes on for about 10, 15 minutes, the full routine. It builds and builds and tops itself and tops itself and tops itself. But they didn't necessarily want to do all of that every time they did it. They couldn't do it for that long on radio or television. It would take up way too much of one broadcast. And, and you're right. When they did live shows, and they did a lot of them, but Bud and Lou toured the country. They they appeared in theaters doing their comedy and in vaudeville and, and uh, raised money and did all kinds of charity work. They would see what the audience wanted to hear. When you're doing material like that and you're doing it for so many years over and over again, it becomes part of your DNA. Uh, I, I again harken back to, to Burns and Allen. If they were short on time or if the audience wasn't responding, Gracie would say to George, George, ask me about my brother. Because she, she, she had a routine in mind already 
to fill the time. Again, very special set of skills to do that. Most comedians can't do that. They have their act. They have their set list. Uh, they can't. It's very difficult to edit on your feet like that. It's easier to say, I'm going to be on the Tonight Show. I'm getting seven minutes. I have a 10-minute routine. I have to cut out three minutes. And you sit with a piece of paper and a pencil or your laptop and you take out three minutes. When you're on your feet and, uh-oh, we're going long or, uh-oh, the audience isn't laughing or, golly, I'm sick of doing this. Let's, let's, let's go into another routine. That's where experience and the chemistry, Bud and Lou had to completely trust each other. There, there couldn't be any mistrust on stage. Once the spotlight hit them, any kind of spotlight, they had to know the other one was right there with them. And, and they were. That's why they worked together so well. They worked together so well. And when the act broke up, Bud Abbott, as I understand it, worked with, uh, found another partner, and yet he would admit nobody does it like Lou. There's been an awful lot written through the years, several books, several TV shows, claiming that Bud and Lou hated each other, that Bud and Lou were jealous of each other. Uh, I've spoken to their children. I don't think so. I do think all of you folks out there who are listening who are married, all right, if you're married for 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years, sooner or later, your spouse is going to get on your nerves. And sooner or later, your spouse is going to say something that really ticks you off or flirts with somebody else or does something where there's friction. But in lieu good heavens, in vaudeville, in, in burlesque, and in the movies. They were together more with each other than they were with their wives and children. So, of course, there's going to be uh, hardships. There's going to be misunderstandings. They were different people. Bud did not have the ambition Lou did. But Lou really couldn't do what he did without Bud. It's, it's why so many of these comedy teams eventually break up. George and Gracie didn't, but Martin and Lewis broke up and Noonan and Marshall broke up and Rowan and Martin broke up and uh, Alan and Rossi broke up. Uh, I can't think of any other team that actually stayed. Maybe the Smothers Brothers, but they took long years where they weren't working together in between working together. Bud and Lou never stopped loving each other. They never stopped having admiration for each other. But Lou wanted to do other things. And unfortunately, the timing, you know, sometimes karma is a bitch. Just when Lou started making movies on his own, he got ill and died. And Bud tried working with other people. It didn't work. And uh, Bud's last work was voicing himself in a bunch of Abbott and Costello cartoons that were made in the 1960s where somebody else voiced Lou. Uh, but their children get along and their grandchildren get along. Everybody's aware that it was a team. So we're talking about, look at the, at the panorama here, the, these incredible performers. 
this comical team. You have uh, burlesque is going, you have radio, you have film, you have television. How in the world, with all the resources available and all of the talent, and you are very familiar with the principles involved, how did the Hollywood Museum pay proper homage to a team like that as multifaceted as they were? Well, how did they do it so well? I, I give tremendous, tremendous respect and applause uh, to Donnell Dadigan, who owns the museum, and Steve Nicolamo, who, who uh, is her right-hand guy and really runs things there. Because we've mentioned there's a strike going on. And the same constraints I have, all the guests had as well. You couldn't mention a studio. For instance, Bud and Lou saved a studio from bankruptcy. The studio is, get this one, folks, universally known, but you mm. can't mention the name. Mm. The, the exhibit itself is gorgeous. They managed to get so many wonderful costumes and things from sets and posters and uh, I, i'm not exaggerating everybody who was there went wow this is gorgeous uh and of course there was a red carpet and all of us who are celebrities who were there were interviewed and then danelle had um two of the grandchildren two of the costello grandchildren talk about their grandpa which was lovely and, and of course, every time Danelle does something like this, that there's catered in food and everybody has a marvelous time. But for Abbott and Costello, we had talked before the show started how much especially baby boomers love them. Uh, I, I grew up in New York City and uh, their, their half hour show was rerun five days a week after school. And then their movies were rerun on the same channel every weekend. So we, we were inundated with Abbott and Costello. I, I have to tell you the, the honest truth. There was a moment there I sat and cried because there were people I grew up with and my late partner who adored them, who would have given their eye teeth to be at the Hollywood Museum mm. and be a part of the people who were honoring them. And I had to sort of fill in for all of these people who'd passed away who loved Bud and Lou and loved their shows. And it was an honor, a special honor this time to be there. Um, Danelle Dadigan is an amazing, amazing woman. We should do a whole show sometime just about Danelle because she's one of the most powerful women in Hollywood. And she has built this wonderful family of celebrities who uh, support the Hollywood Museum and all kinds of people, Carolyn Hennessy from soap operas and uh, Rosalind Kine singing and Anson Williams from Happy Days. And we're, we're just all so thrilled to be a part of it. I can well understand it. And I am officially envious, Jeffrey. While we have a, a couple of minutes left, I do want to duck in this part because it's important. Abbott and Costello were very patriotic when patriotism wasn't something as much about choosing up sides back in the day. It was an existential requirement if you were an American, if you were a Westerner. And wow, did they raise the money, the war bonds. I believe they raised about $85 million. How iconic, you ask? 
the song Boogie Boogie Bugle Boy comes from their first one of their first films. I mean, their 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 early films had World War II motifs, and they took the popularity of those and the popularity of their radio show, and as you said, raised millions of dollars in bonds to to help support the war effort and to help pull people together and uh, maybe clear up some of the fear of going into the armed forces, made it more glamorous than it probably was, but try to show folks, hey, we're all in this together. Here's your chance to pitch in. And, uh, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, we've talked about several times. She sang a tisket a tasket in one of the Abbott and Costello films. Lucille Ball, who we've talked about, was a guest on one of their very first radio shows. Um, they, they seem to have touched every part of show business. There are so many connections. And uh, I know we only have a minute left. I cannot look at any other comedy team who touched as many people in so many different areas of media so successfully. And all these years later, uh, I mean, Bud is gone over 50 years now. We're still loving them. We're still talking about them. You're still building a whole show around them. And the Hollywood Museum built a whole exhibit. Go to the Hollywood Museum and catch it. You won't be sorry. And if you Google the Hollywood Museum and then maybe add Abbott and Costello, you can read all about it and make plans to show up in person as Jeffrey Mark did. You show up in person for our show. Always glad to have you with us, my friend. And I can't wait to have you back again. Lord only knows what we'll talk about, but it will be fun. I look forward to it. And we look forward to being on next week, ladies and gentlemen. We hope that you'll enjoy that show as well. We always come up with something. Thanks for tuning in to American Road Trip Talk, along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co-founders of American Road Magazine. We remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue. Until next time, dream well and drive safely on the American Road. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure.